As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After five and a half months without one, the World Trade Organization has a new leader. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala brings plenty of experience to the role, but it's a tricky time to be repairing relationships and building trust among the WTO's members. And beneath the waves, there's a constantly shifting soundscape. As humans carry on more activity underwater, it's getting louder and louder. Meanwhile, the creatures that call the ocean home are getting quieter and quieter. First up, though. Today ends a two-day summit on security and terrorism in the Sahel, a vast and volatile African region south of the Sahara Desert. Leaders of the G5 Sahel grouping, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger, met in Chad's capital, N'Djamena. French President Emmanuel Macron joined via video link. For the past eight years, France has been leading a counterterrorism effort against the region's jihadists. A year ago, it increased its force there to more than 5,000 troops, who have had some success in beating back one of the main armed groups. But the country's continued military presence has also drawn protests in Mali. As the conflict drags on and insurgents reassemble, France finds itself in a tough spot, fighting a thankless war that looks harder and harder to win. The G5 countries and Emmanuel Macron are meeting to really take stock and review options on this operation and how it has evolved over the last year. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. The region is still unstable and I think the French in particular want to review how things have gone and decide what they're going to do next. And let's wind back a bit. What is the conflict about and and who's involved? Well, it's been eight years now since the French first dispatched troops out to Mali at the time. It was to beat back an incursion by jihadists who had coming from the north and were heading to Bamako, the capital. It really is a sort of complex picture of different jihadist groups, some of which are linked to al-Qaeda, some of which are linked to Islamic State and their local affiliates, and with roots in separatist movements, some of them, the area has been really terrorised for a long time. Last year, there were 7,000 civilian deaths. There are a million people who've lost their homes or have had to move from their homes. And I think that the French felt after all this time a year ago that they needed to lead a surge to try and improve the security situation, which is what they did. They'd sent an extra... 500 soldiers out there to boost the force to over 5,000. And they have had some success. They have managed in some regions to curb jihadist attacks on the villagers, particularly against the group that's linked to Islamic State. 
But the problem is that, you know, you can have tactical successes against one jihadist group in one part of the country and in others they are still doing their deadly work and these sorts of terrorist attacks have been spilling out into other countries outside the Sahel region. So it really is a mixed picture, some successes, but also an incredibly unstable situation. And why is it that France is leading these efforts to to beat back the jihadists? Well, I mean, France was the former colonial power in um, these countries, this part of West Africa. It's mostly French-speaking. And it, I think, feels that it's got historical links. Even since independence, it's had military bases in the region. So it has, in the past, acted as a sort of regional policeman. But I think it's also because there is a direct security interest for Europe to have a stable area in the Sahel. You know, don't forget, this is the continent just to the south of Europe. It's become an area which is a sort of crossroads across the desert for arms and guns and human trafficking. And the French have justified their presence in the past as a way of helping to prevent Islamic terrorist attacks in Europe. There isn't much evidence that that is actually the case, but there's certainly a security and stability argument to be made for making sure that this area doesn't uh, spin completely out of control. And other foreign powers are happy to let France take that lead? It's very complicated and actually they're seen as having suspect motivations. You know, France in the past did act to prop up autocrats in certain countries and it's very sensitive having the former colonial power act as a a security guarantor. I think this is part of France's problem that a lot of people in the region actually, whether or not they're egged on by rumours circulating on social media or not, but a lot of people are accusing France of acting as a neo-colonial force of occupation and demanding for them, indeed, sometimes campaigning or protesting in the streets for France to leave. And is that on the table? Do you think Mr. Macron will choose to pull out some or, or indeed all of the troops? Well, the French have said that they would review the situation. They carried out this surge last year, and I think that they feel that has been moderately successful by its own measures, but they never wanted to be there forever. It's a question of trying to work out what is one's long-term exit strategy. I think that President Macron might well draw down troops a little bit. I think it would be unlikely for him to decide to leave in a hurry from the region. He has said very clearly he wants to make sure that elected representatives of the countries in which he operates actually have asked him to stay. That's incredibly important for legitimizing the French operation, I think. But It's really important at this point for them to start trying to work out how and on what sort of a timetable they can draw down troops and at some point maintain only a very, very moderate operation in these countries. But from a tactical point of view, would that be a good move? I mean, insofar as they are maintaining the peace? Well, I think if they were to pull out abruptly tomorrow, this would be dire. The security of villages across the region where France has managed to push back jihadist groups would in all likelihood be overrun. So I don't think this is something that anybody would recommend doing in a hurry. But I think they do need to think about how they can build up local capacity. Don't forget there is also a United Nations peacekeeping operation in the centre of Mali, which is helping. And there are a lot of different countries contributing to troops in that operation. And above all, it's the local armed forces. You know, I saw this when I was in Mali last year, that the European special forces are operating alongside, for example, the Malian armed forces in order to train up their capacity to conduct their own combat operations on the ground. And I think this has to be the long-term aim, is to make sure that the security of these countries is guaranteed by their own armed forces. But what about the prospect of drawing in other countries' help, though, spreading this load a bit? 
And I think this is one of the things the French would like to do. They have managed to get quite a lot of Europeans to express interest in joining this uh, mixed European special forces operation. In fact, the Estonians and the Czechs and the Swedes are there already. But not that many European countries are that keen to put their boots on the ground. There is a crucial help for them at the moment from the United States in terms of intelligence and logistical support. This is actually under review at the moment from the Biden administration and the French are waiting to hear whether they will maintain it. I think they hope very much that the US will stay. And I think it is important for the French also politically not simply to be seen as a sort of neocolonial force to make sure that this is all European and indeed the North Atlantic partnership also helping this security operation in Mali. But I think, you know, no matter how this load is shared around, it's just an incredibly difficult situation. It's a huge area. If you take the whole of the Sahel, it's the size of India. It's dusty. It's very sparsely populated. And jihadist groups can come and go. They can regroup. They can disappear. They can cross borders. There aren't exactly clear border demarcations between countries in this region. And I think that one has to see this as a a long war of attrition that is going to be there on Europe's doorstep for quite a while to come. Thanks very much for joining us, Sophie. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. In a historic appointment, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala has become leader of the World Trade Organization. It's both exciting and daunting at the same time to be here because I take the reins of the WTO at a time of great uncertainty and challenge. She's not only the first woman to lead the WTO, but also the first African. Absolutely do feel an additional burden. I can't lie about that. But the bottom line is that If I want to really make Africa and women proud, I have to produce results. The organization had been leaderless since Roberto Azevedo stepped down last August, more than a year before the end of his term. Mrs. Okonjo-Iweala's ascendancy comes at a perilous time for global trade and international cooperation. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala's appointment as the director general of the World Trade Organization has been a long time coming. Samaya Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalization editor. But leading the organization to a brighter future is going to be challenging. Trust between the members is very low, and appetite for new rules is even lower. Tell us more about Mrs. Okonjo-Iweala. What's her background? Her CV is pretty impressive. She was the finance minister of Nigeria twice. For 25 years, she was at the World Bank. She was number two as managing director of operations. Recently, she's been involved in Gavi, the vaccine alliance, trying to get 
access to vaccines for poorer countries. She's been praised for her no-nonsense approach. She definitely would call herself a reformer, and she's clearly got a lot of experience managing large organizations. Now, what she doesn't have is a lot of direct experience as a trade negotiator or a trade minister, but she knows the multilateral organization's space very well. And if the previous leader of the WTO stepped down last year, why this delay? Why has it been so long in getting her appointment? The short answer to that is the Trump administration. For a while, it did look like the confirmation would be relatively straightforward. And last October, 163 members out of 164 backed her. The other candidate was Yu Myung-hee, who was the South Korean trade minister. And essentially, at the last minute, the Trump administration said... No, we don't want Ngozia Kondraweyla, we want Yu Myung-hee. It's not entirely clear to me why they did it. Now, the official reason is that Yu Myung-hee had more trade experience. There were also statements to the effect that the Americans were unhappy with the selection process. And so it's odd because everyone could see that when the Biden administration came into power, unless there was a really good reason not to support Mrs. Okonjo-Awela, that the Biden administration would just go ahead with it. And that is what happened. On February 5th, they published a statement expressing their strong support for her uh, in keeping with the Biden administration's new multilateralist approach. And so here we are. And now that we are here, what's her first challenge going to be, do you think? I think the most obvious thing that will be in her entry is a set of ongoing negotiations where members are trying to agree restraints on subsidies for fishing. So this is this big problem where governments give handouts to fishing companies. That means that they fish too much, and that means that global fish stocks are not being sustainably fished. Now, one of the problems is that the World Trade Organization is a member-driven organization. The director general has no hard power. They can't force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. So one of the big issues is this problem about the balance of rights and obligations of different countries. This is a really big issue at the WTO. And you have poorer countries saying, we can't meet the same standards as you rich countries. We need more time, we need more flexibility in keeping with our level of development. Meanwhile, you have the richer ones saying, hang on, you can't have these massive carve-outs. Some members may be poor on average, but they're really, really big. If we give the likes of India a carve-out, then that's just going to weaken the rules and, and render them meaningless. I think the reality is that she can use her soft power and try to apply her political clout to persuade politicians in domestic capitals that they really should care about this and make the concessions needed to get it over the line. But I'm not sure this negotiation hasn't succeeded because of the personality of the director general. But having gone over her CV, she sounds like she would be as able as anyone to give that a go. I think that's the case. And I don't want to be too you know, harsh. There are some things that the director general can do. She can be a cheerleader for the global trading system. The pandemic has seen a lot of trade restrictions go into effect. There's obviously been the Trump administration. I think there's this general feeling that the idea that you should pay attention to the rules has been degraded somewhat. And so it's worth reminding people of, of why the system is a good one, why avoiding escalating tit-for-tat trade wars is a good idea. It is the case that if she gains members' trust as an honest broker, then they could empower her to help them reach compromises. 
At the mention of tit-for-tat trade wars and so on, I mean, one of the big complaints about the WTO is that it hasn't been tough enough on China. What's your take? What's her take on that? Oh, if you want to become Director General of the World Trade Organization, you have to tread very carefully around the massive disputes between the very, very biggest members of the WTO. When thinking about this question, has the WTO been tough enough on China? There's a slight framing problem. It's worth remembering what the WTO is, right? It's a, it's a set of rules agreed and enforced by the members, by Japan, Costa Rica, the EU, the US. There is no WTO police force going out and finding rule breaking. It's all enforced by the members. Now, you could say that the rules of the WTO were not written to cope with China's system, which is not very transparent, which has this really blurred line between the private and public sector. You could also say that members like the EU or Japan or even maybe the US didn't work hard enough to enforce the rules that were on the books. But in both of those cases, the failing isn't with this WTO thing, but it's with the members. They need to agree better rules and they need to enforce those rules if they're really concerned about China. And they need to find a way for China to sign up to those rules. So it sounds as if the right person is now at the top of the WTO to try to make those reforms. But is the time right for making them to make the WTO as relevant as everyone says they want it to be? I think you're right. I think it's great that we have this new director general. In terms of it being the right time, I'm not sure there's ever a right time. But I do hope that now that we have this new director general, the Trump administration is fading from view. All of these excuses for not agreeing things, these things that were sapping everyone's energy, hopefully they will go away and members will see, hang on, the reason we're not agreeing things is is us, right? It's not that Trump is ruining everything or we don't have a director general, it's us. And it's on us to make the concessions, make the breakthroughs that are required. Samaya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. the surface of the ocean, and it's easy to imagine that underneath, things are placid, tranquil, quiet. In many places, though, it's anything but. From motorboats to seabed construction, the acoustic environment underwater is in many ways much louder than it once was. In other ways, it's quieter. And in both cases, that's bad news for the denizens of the deep. The ocean was once a pristine environment which boasted a natural symphony of sounds. Peter Silk writes about science for The Economist. But a recent review which looked at tens of thousands of papers has catalogued the increasingly raucous atmosphere under the surface, which is drowning out the natural ocean soundscape. And this is the result of human activity. So what human activity are we talking about here? Everything from commercial shipping to fishing and trawling, uh, the construction of oil rigs, wind farms, and even aircraft flying high above the surface. Some other examples are sonar for military and shipping vessels and seismic surveys, which produce a huge amount of really penetrating sound under the water. What's important to remember about that is that sound travels further under the water. And some of these sounds can be heard hundreds or even thousands of kilometers away. Now, perversely, uh, humans are also making the oceans quieter in some parts. How do you mean? Once, some parts of the ocean would have been alive with the conversation of sea creatures. 
now they are eerily silent. So whale song is the most obvious example of this. Hunters have hunted some species almost to extinction, but also seals and sea lions, dolphins have been reduced in numbers and with them goes their conversation and their songs. And human-induced climate change takes a toll because with the erosion of coral reefs, which are the most biodiverse parts of the ocean and indeed of the whole world, the burble and chatter of many other species vanishes from fish and invertebrates to crustaceans and even plant life. So the soundscape is changing, but what effect does that actually have on the wildlife? We know that all of this extra racket underwater stresses sea creatures out and it wears on them physiologically. This review found evidence that noise pollution compromised the ability of animals to avoid predators. There's also a growing body of work to suggest that the larvae and young of some coral reef dwelling creatures like fish and crustaceans use sound to navigate to suitable homes in the coral reef. And lower settlement rates could in turn lead to lower numbers of these species in the reef. The use of military sonar and submarine explosions has also been linked to mass strandings of whales. It's possible that some of these submarine explosions caused the bends in the whales. They were found beached with air bubbles in their bloodstreams. Could be that it's causing them to hemorrhage. So there really is a copious evidence that sound pollution has direct and dramatic impacts on the physiology and behavior of many, many undersea species. But what's to be done? A lot of this is just the, the way of the underwater world now. That's right. And in a poorly managed future, a lot of this could get worse with increasing ship traffic and construction, underwater mining, and even wilder storms and the crash of melting sea ice due to climate change. But the silver lining with noise pollution is that unlike other threats to marine life, like plastic pollution or ocean acidification, as soon as you remove the origin of sound pollution, you also remove the pollution itself, and sea life will immediately recover from its impact. We actually saw this last year when man-made noise fell by about 20% in the ocean because 60% of the world's population were locked down, of course. And what we saw were a range of immediate recoveries from certain species. Whales resided close to coastlines that they've not been seen for in generations. The authors say that this makes tackling noise pollution a relatively simple way to ensure sustainable oceans going into the future. But how, though, beyond just simply stopping doing things like seismic surveys and, and using sonar? Existing technology and policy can be turned towards reducing the sound pollution. Things like using air bubble curtains to muffle sound around wind farm construction sites and also using floating wind turbines, putting quieter propellers on the loudest cargo ships and also trying to reduce traffic, and inputting legal incentives to limit noise all of these are achievable ways to limit the aural disturbance on marine life. And it is important to consider the inhabitants when we're doing what we do in the oceans. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. 
but with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.